Thank you for listening to Stroke Busters, a podcast presented by the Institute for Stroke and Cerebrovascular Disease at UT Health Houston. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you the latest news and discussion in stroke care, research, community, and academia. I'm Amy Quinn, Communications Director for the Stroke Institute. Thanks for joining us today. In this episode, Stroke Fellow Dr. Pam Zelnick sat down with Dr. Neka Fejica following her Grand Rounds presentation, Stroke Recovery Throughout the Continuum of Care at McGovern Medical School here in Houston, Texas. Dr. Fejica is an Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at UT Southwestern Medical School and serves as Section Chief of Stroke Rehabilitation. She has secondary appointments in the Departments of Neurology and Population and Data Sciences and has both clinical and research interest spanning each of these fields. Throughout her career, Dr. Fejica has excelled as a clinical educator while also dedicating much of her time to research. Her current research interests focus on transitions of care after stroke, stroke outcomes, and health disparities. She was an engaging guest, friendly and open, and her passion for her work clearly shows in her attitude and energy. Let's get right to it. Enjoy. So Dr. Efejica, thank you so much for joining us again. That was a great talk that we just had on our grand rounds about stroke rehabilitation and transitions of care. Um, I know stroke recovery is such a vast field, so we really won't be able to talk um, and cover the meat of everything that it encompasses, but hopefully we can uh, give our listeners today a little bit of an understanding of your work and how the field of stroke rehabilitation is advancing. Um, If you don't mind, we'll just jump into it. I was hoping you could tell us um, in the last 10 or 15 years, kind of what was the scope and role of stroke rehabilitation and how has that changed since uh, it's evolved over the last decade? Pam, thanks so much for having me. And I'm, I'm excited to kind of talk about the breadth and depth from a peripheral view of stroke rehabilitation and, and a little bit of my historical perspective. So I want to say when I was first hired to join the UT Houston stroke team, stroke rehabilitation essentially occurred when the patient was ready for discharge. It was a matter of, okay, we've completed our entire stroke workup. Let's call PM&R because the therapist said it's time for inpatient rehab and let's make the referral. I, I know now as a part of my clinical practice that, that I was brought in for that reason and that reason was a problem. So stroke rehabilitation starts right from stroke symptom onset. So a part of my practice, which was innovative at the time was I was a part of the stroke order set. So I was consulted on day one and, and indeed now in at UT Southwestern, PM&R is checked off on admission. So it's PT, OT, speech, PM&R. And if we have to put in a bed rest order, if a person received, say, TPA, or they went to the angio suite and had, you know, mechanical thrombectomy, then so be it. But rehabilitation is ordered initially. And it's not just about disposition. It's about, you know, making sure the patient doesn't have healthcare-associated infections, making sure they're not having any contractures, watching their swallow making sure they're being mobilized properly, making sure they're developing bed sores. So it's not just about disposition, it's about making sure that they're able to have optimal stroke recovery. There's no point in doing all of these acute stroke interventions within the first hour or 90 minutes or whatever the outcome measure is that we're trying to get to if we let it all fall apart after that. And I think stroke rehabilitation is really taking on that role of being the the, the caregiver and the, and the gatekeeper per se of what happens after that and how we can mitigate some of the preventable 
complications that can affect our long-term outcomes. What advances have driven the change from before you, you know, joined the field to after? I, I don't, I see myself as a physiatrist every day. I am a rehabilitation doctor, blood, sweat, and tears, love it, you know, but I also have a different side of me that is not a normal thing. You don't really meet people who are not into a cross-trained vascular neurology and did a fellowship and, and, you know, work within that world. But I think that's kind of the way that we need to be pivoting as stroke recovery doctors. You, you can't just wait for the work to be done and, and, and be contacted to say, okay, now it's time to, you know, now it's time to express your expertise. No, you got to be strong. You got to get in there and say, no, no, no. I know I have a skill set that y'all aren't even thinking of. Here's a skill set and, and, and use it to affect better outcomes. And I think, you know, another side of that is over the past, you know, seven years when mechanical thrombectomy came into actually being shown to be efficacious if we do it in this manner, that was another opportunity for us to say as a field, you know, things can pivot, things can change. We need to be intervening even earlier. We need to be using catheters in this way. They tried for, you know, honestly, probably about at least 10 years before the 2015 five trials came out to kind of get to this point. And so I think that we're in this time period in history where innovations and synergy and being on the, the threshold of fields is important because if you're an interventional, you know, if you're a person who does interventional procedures or vascular interventional neurology, you could be a neurologist, but I know neurosurgeons who do it and I know radiologists who do it. So it's kind of like this crossroads. I look at stroke rehabilitation in that way. I don't have to be a physiatrist. I don't have to be a neurologist, but I have to have a synergy. I have to be able to engage and interact in both worlds. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the next stage of medicine is kind of getting rid of all these silos of if you trained in this, you must be here. And if you trained in that specialty, you must be there. I don't have to be anywhere, but with the patients. That was something I was really impressed by when I was kind of reading over all of the work that you've done. Like a lot of it is stuff that I would have thought, oh, this is something that would be completed by a neurologist or, or a vascular neurologist. And to see someone who's come from a completely different um, background and then kind of still found your way into this, this highway of, of stroke medicine and even pre-hospital stroke medicine is something you don't see very often, but it kind of speaks to what you were saying about how we need to get rid of this silo idea and, you know, everyone's staying in their own little um, compartment and kind of broad or bridge broaden into this more multidisciplinary approach where, you know, we include everyone regardless of what their, their background or their training is. I think that it's imperative. I, I, I've been very fortunate that no one ever told me where I really belong or where I should sit or where my science should live. I was never told that, which is why, you know, I'm able to essentially go pre-hospital, essentially go rehab, go community, do primary stroke prevention, do secondary stroke prevention. I take care of stroke patients. Wherever they are, I'm going to be. So if it's pre-hospital, so be it. I'm going to be pre-hospital. If it's in the inpatient rehab unit, so be it. That's where I'm going to be. I think that once you have the mindset of I must dwell in this location, you're in like, you almost have blinders on to the other opportunities you have to provide 
provide good care. It's kind of like I was saying, you know, during Grand Rounds, there are so many thousands of journals you can publish in. Why would I just keep myself into one section of journals where stroke care is everywhere? I need to be in all of those, all of those journals so I can have all of those perspectives with collaborators. You look at stroke in different ways, in different fields. I need to have that knowledge. We need to share that knowledge for the betterment of, of the patients. So it's a definitely a, a different way of looking at stroke rehabilitation, but I think that it's important and it's prudent and it's timely. It sounds like Dr. Fajika, when you first started, uh, the concept of stroke rehab was very much like you, you start the process when they're ready to leave the hospital instead of, you know, on their hospital, on their ambulance ride into the hospital or on their first day of the hospital. And I don't know, maybe you can speak to this a little bit more. Like, was that, um, were there people who were addressing stroke rehabilitation needs on day one, really before you started? Or is that something that kind of um, fell into your scope and you kind of helped develop that idea that stroke rehabilitation needed to be addressed sooner? I, I think that it was based on the opinion of the stroke team that week. So that's the way it was beforehand. It was like, okay, I can consult for stroke rehabilitation, you know, when I feel like, I feel like from my perspective, they would be indicated or needed. So that could be day one, it could be day seven. There was a lot of heterogeneity and then there wasn't really a structured follow-up. So a PM&R, usually it was a resident when I was there, before, when I was in trainee, I was the resident sometimes, I would come to stroke rounds and it would be at the bedside and there'd be conversations, but PM&R or stroke rehab wouldn't have a, a active participation. They'd be like, okay, you wanna consult me? All right, I'll go see the patient. You know, But it wasn't a matter of, yeah, I'm seeing this patient on day X. This is what I wanna deal with. This is the problem with this catheter. This is the problem with speech. I'm worried they're silently aspirating. White counts jump to this. Maybe we should take a look at this and get this Foley catheter removed. Or, you know, this patient is medically stable, but I am concerned about the disposition and whether there's a provision of a caregiver here. Have we had that discussion? It wasn't that kind of active engagement. And I think that because it wasn't as active and there was a resident attending, it's a whole other issue entirely. When you have a trainee attend these rounds regularly, it doesn't really teach them the question they should be asking. And I was a trainee. And so I was kind of like, you know, feeling it out saying, you know, hey, I got a feeling some things are being missed here, but I didn't want to speak up too much because I was, I was a trainee. I was in a junior position. When I became faculty, I was kind of like, you know, I'm here sitting at the table, the charts all around us. I've got something to say, and I'm going to say it on day one. And I was very fortunate that at the time, my chair was the one who hired me, who was a basket of knowledge. He was like, yeah, you got something to say. We're going to start calling you right away. And so, you know, that, that perspective became important to the plan of care. We were able to get down our length of stay significantly. There was a point where the average ischemic stroke patient only stayed on the stroke service for four days before they came to rehab. That was it, four tops, four, maybe three, because, because I was present from hospital admission. So I can get perspective, one, two, three, four, five, getting insurance approval if they had a traditional Medicare plan, didn't require prior authorization, get them to rehab within three days. You can't do that if you don't have the consult on day one and, and, and you think about when you want to consult them, you don't know what you want because you're not a stroke rehab doctor, but I am. 
And I'm telling you, we need to be called on day one because we're going to help you mitigate complications you need to think about. You got nothing to think about. If you're a vascular neurologist, you're thinking about post-stroke complications that are related to the stroke acutely. And that's sometimes why we end up transferring patients to the hospitalist service or internal medicine services after we're done with the stroke workup. If you called a stroke rehabilitation doctor, they can actually help you with some of that. And so I think it's important to like make sure we have that kind of knowledge around our perceptions of what would be a benefit, which is why I, we published this paper about the effect of a stroke consult service that's interdisciplinary on access to stroke rehabilitation because it showed length of stay decreased. These are the same patients. They have the same stroke severity. It's the same hospital system. It's just that team, that group of people has an impact on length of stay and outcomes and access to post-stroke rehabilitation. So again, it, it just it just behooves you to get out of your silo and your mindset of what's appropriate, when it's appropriate, and just push the console on day one and let other people assist you in the process of transition to care for stroke. Yeah, I thought the idea of this interdisciplinary stroke consult service is it, the idea of trying to put it together sounds very daunting, but it sounds like something that would be hugely beneficial to patients. And um, I, you gave a little bit of an example about kind of who's included in your teams. It sounds like, you know, all, all types of physicians, PM&R, vascular neurologists, nursing and social work and all of the different therapy groups. And I think you even named a few others. Um, is this something that you would expect to become kind of standard of care across the hospital systems in the United States? Or is this, is that kind of a far out idea? So we, we piloted it here in the structure that's here because I had the vision at UT Houston that it could be this way. And the components were there. It was just a matter of making sure it was implemented in a manner that was very, very structured. And so I actually had the idea when I got here, I was like, you know, we can do this. Not only can we do this, we can do this well and in an organized manner that won't, that won't be daunting to others. So at comprehensive stroke centers across the country, they're going to be looking at this exact topic, transitions of care. It is going to become a big deal over the next few years because ideally they want to incorporate post-stroke rehabilitation if needed as a part of the processes that are analyzed by the surveys particularly of joint commission. So it was a matter of, if we know this is coming, why aren't we just proactively addressing it? And so I thought it was imperative to create a group of providers of all types that actually almost come in and are running parallel to provide patient care. There needs to be more intersection because they're having, everyone's having conversations in the chart on separate notes but no one's incorporating the data, which is why we created that virtual rounding tool. Essentially, I go pull up a patient's chart, I press a button, and it incorporates all of the data from the physicians, whether it be PM&R and vascular neurology, neurocritical care, from the therapist, PT, OT speech, from the care coordinator, from the social worker, from the pharmacist, on one sheet. So everyone can say, aha, that's what so-and-so is doing. I can remember so many times where there, you would try to find the physical therapist. Has the patient been evaluated? Do we know? Let's go look for the physical therapist or we'll just keep refreshing the notes to see whether the physical therapist saw the patient. Now I can go into one location, press refresh. And there's the PT note. And there's all the scores I need. 
Same thing with medications. You know, have we reconciled the outside medications? That was always something that we worried about. Have we, do we make sure they, the pharmacist has looked at the old medications, uh, analyzed for any changes, you know, hopefully synthesized them into a, a cost-effective paradigm? Well, boom, pharmacy. They have all the medicines right there. It's listed in the virtual rounding tool. So it was just a matter of making sure that we incorporate all of that. And I think that because we've written this paper now and it's in press, we provided a roadmap to do it. Like exactly what we did at each step to create this continuum of care committee, how it is comprehensive, how it's breaking down the silos and who's incorporated in it. And you can see within the flow chart that we created, it's like seven steps. This is not difficult stuff. It's just a matter of setting up the structure and having the organization in your system that believes in it. And in most CSCs across the country, they do. They just need to figure out their steps in order to facilitate the process. Yeah, and it sounds like if this is something that's really helping patient outcomes and increasing the rate of, at which patients are accepted into inpatient rehab facilities or skilled nursing facilities, if that's more appropriate for them, then it's really something that should be required of all centers that are designated as a, as a comprehensive stroke center or a primary stroke center. Um, I think, you know, most hospitals have the tools to do it, whether or not they have the organization to actually put the team together yet is is something probably that can be dictated by a certification process. So hopefully we see something like that in the future. Yeah, I think that it'll also be important to, again, like, you know, I am a cerebrovascular PM&R doctor. So I, I am able to, I, I, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to receive the respect of my peers in acute and post-acute. I think that it'll be really important that we're able to facilitate communication and leadership opportunities amongst, you know, PM&R clinicians across the country. If you're, if you're a consultant, you should be able to be a part of the comprehensive stroke center certification process. If you're in a rehabilitation, if you're a rehab physician or clinician, I, I've been, I've been very fortunate. I've always been a part of the CSC certification. They always, you know, pull me out and talk. And that's a normal thing for me. It's been a normal thing my entire career, but I've realized over time, that's not, that's not normal for everybody. And, but if it was a part it was part and parcel for what was required for our centers to be certified that 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 need to have a strong rehab presence because we understood the importance of rehabilitation. And with the AHA guidelines for stroke recovery, essentially emphasizing inpatient rehab is key, there really needs to be an emphasis on making sure that stroke rehabilitation physicians are a part of the acute stroke team and a part of the certification process. Yeah, that's great. I think that's really important. I know that that's a huge focus of, of some of the research that you're doing, um, but I don't want to ignore kind of another part of your of your research, another focus, which is disparities in, in stroke recovery for um, different patient populations. Um, and you were able to talk about that a little bit in the Grand Rounds talk, which is great. Um, but for those people who don't have access to that uh, that discussion, would you mind just talking a little bit about um, your research in, in stroke rehabilitation with regards to disparities? Absolutely. So my research focuses on two populations, primarily Mexican-American and African-American populations, as well as populations who have English as a second language. All these populations are near and dear to my heart. And I think it's important within, particularly within the U.S. health system, that we address health disparities and how they impact long-term outcomes for patients. So within the Mexican-American population, I did a lot of work with 
with the basic program, which is Brain Attack Surveillance in Corpus Christi project, which is involved in Nueces County, Texas. And we looked at large cohorts of Mexican Americans within that group of people within that county. And we found that essentially, it doesn't matter if you have the exact same stroke as a non-Hispanic white, the exact same health insurance as a non-Hispanic white, exact same age as a non-Hispanic white, you're less likely to receive intensive post-stroke rehabilitation. And, you know, there have been multiple ways of explaining this, that there's, you know, a cultural difference and that the um, Mexican-American patients do not want to go to post-acute rehabilitation. And the conversation I always have ends like this. Have you really explained what happens at the inpatient rehab facility? And, you know, I, I create a chart that shows the differences between long-term acute care, spillage facility, inpatient rehab facility when it comes to outcomes. I will tell you, when I show someone the chart, it doesn't matter who I show the chart. It is immediately apparent if they have access to this level of post-acute care and take it. And so it's a matter of providing, you know, not just education, but also culturally competent education. If a patient's family or their caregiver or the patient says, I don't want to go to an institution, I want to go home. Okay. Is an inpatient rehab facility institution? Of course not. It's a level of post-acute care where doctors are required to come there every day. Therapists, nurses, they're going to get round-the-clock care. So it's a matter of, again, having a conversation beyond the I want to go home conversation, particularly when we know that inpatient rehab facility care improves functional outcomes. You have to get more granular with the way you communicate. And that's really important in my research. Like I make sure I provide the best opportunity for culturally competent counseling to all stroke patients I come in contact with. If it's not me, it's someone I know who's able to meet people exactly where they are and have conversations. Because the number one thing is people don't want to be disabled. People don't want to have a bad stroke outcome. Not just the patients or the caregivers, we don't want them to have a bad stroke outcome. Why are we going through all this trouble of bringing them into the hospital quickly, of taking them to get TPA or TNK, of pulling the clot out, making sure we save the penumbra? And then what do we do? We make sure they, you know, they end up going home where they probably are going to sit or get home health therapy or worse, where the data now shows that if they don't get inpatient rehab and they go straight home, they're more likely to be dependent for mobility, for feeding themselves, bathing themselves, grooming themselves. No one wants that. So the conversation needs to kind of pivot more toward, you know, what is your long-term goal? You want to get as close to normal as you were, correct? This is the process to do this. That conversation I find is not really happening amongst populations of color, populations with English as a second language. And that's the kind of conversation that needs to happen by all stroke providers of all specialties saying, our goal is to get you to be as functionally independent as possible. This is everything that you've gone through to get you to that point. This is the next step. And I don't think that we're really articulating that in a way that we could amongst minority populations, we're not taking that extra energy. And unfortunately, that's the patient of the service. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. I, I definitely have personally experienced scenarios where I think we use the word skilled nursing facility and the patient or the patient's family here is nursing home. Exactly. You know, I would never put my mother in a nursing home. You know, we've talked about this. She would never want that. But if we're not taking the time to explain that nursing home does not equal skilled nursing facility, that they're not the same thing, that, you know, this option is better for their their outcome or their rehabilitation, then, of course, like, patients are going to be more, you know, um, receptive to going to a, a facility where they're going to be able to get 
extra treatment. Um, I think, you know, every doctor thinks they do a good job of explaining to their patients, like the, the, the disease process and what's happened in the treatment plan. But, you know, sometimes even I take a step back and I'm like, I definitely didn't, I didn't get to the patient's level and we were not, we weren't communicating the way we should have been communicating. So I think that's something definitely we need to be more conscious of. Um, aside from just, you know, the physician role, like what can we do to get more patients to rehab? What are some of the other barriers that we find that are preventing patients from getting to the rehab that they need? So um, therapy access while they're in the hospital during their acute stroke hospitalization, you know, that's the paper that we published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society in 2021, where we showed that, you know, in an older population, adults age over 65 with prolonged hospitalization, they were getting an average of about 60 minutes of therapy per week, per week while acutely hospitalized for greater than 14 days. In order to come to inpatient rehab, you have to show activity tolerance for at least three hours of therapy a day. How can they meet the activity tolerance threshold of three hours of therapy a day, the potential to do that, when you're giving them 60 minutes of therapy per week? So that's the kind of thing that from a, um, a perspective of non-physician providers, a perspective of therapy providers, there I, I can't, as a, a, a PM&R doctor, recommend inpatient rehab if I don't have evidence documented that the patient can show activity tolerance. But if you're only coming to the room on, on total PT and OT of 60 minutes per week, I can't make the recommendation. I can't. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be something that would be even covered by insurance because they would go through the chart and say, wait a minute, how, how could Dr. Frenchley even say this? Patient got 60 minutes per week. So again, it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of services. That's why it's important to break down that silo effect, to have that kind of conversation saying, you know, look, I can't get them to where they need to be post-acutely for rehab if we don't do things acutely to essentially provide that intensity of activity that will portend their access to care. And to even have someone who kind of is in real time evaluating this kind of information, like, you know, patient in bed seven has only had this many minutes of rehab this week, and we can't make a good re rehab recommendation based on that. And to give that feedback to therapy or to the teams that are involved, it's really important. But if you don't have a system in place for that, then they're not going to know. They'll never know. And so here at UT Southwestern, <laughs> we keep track. So we know when a patient was seen, when they last were seen, how many minutes it pops up in a virtual rounding tool. So there's accountability to the whole team. So everyone can see when the patient was last seen because it populates their notes and their therapy scores. So we're able to see how long they had that therapy activity. Usually on average, the physical therapist and occupational therapist see people for about an hour each session on acute, 30 minutes to an hour, depending on their co-treating. And they see them every day. If you don't see one of my patients on weekends, I know about it. Because in the virtual rounding tool, it's not just me. Everyone knows about it. And that's a level of accountability that's important. Speech therapists tend to spend a longer amount of time in the room. And then I've noticed in some organizations, speech therapy is not automatically consulted. Because, there, again, it's just assumption, well, they look good. I don't think they're aspirating. Well, if they have posterior circulation stroke and they're silently aspirating, how would you know anyway? So we make sure PT, OT, and speech are all consulted. Because you can go to inpatient rehab. With physical therapies automatically required to go to inpatient rehab, you have to have a PT knee. But you can have a PT and an OT knee or a PT and a speech knee. 
So if you have a patient who's doing pretty well with their activity of living and they may not need occupational therapy, you can have speech therapy come in and they have needs for that. That can also help you get them the inpatient rehab. So again, these type of things, you know, making sure the order sets are automatically checked. People are tired. <laughs> they, they may not remember to check um, speech therapy on a Saturday morning. And then the patient not seeing Saturday or Sunday, and then you come in on Monday and it's the primary team, and you may not get around to checking those orders until four in the, in the afternoon. So again, you know, having system, using the EMR, having systems that are automatically checked, making sure that's actually facilitated. You know, we're fortunate, we have computers. This stuff all used to be handwritten. <laughs> you can have systems in place where you're able to use the EMR to your benefit. And I think it's what I've definitely learned over the past several years and that we're implementing to effect here in Dallas. Yeah, I think I actually have noticed sometimes where the speech therapy specifically doesn't get ordered on admission because the patient's intubated or whichever reason they're not appropriate for therapy at that time. And then by the time we realize that they're not getting seen by therapy, that's a couple of days of therapy that's that's missed that could have been ongoing. Yeah, PT will come back. OT will come back. Speech will come back. If they're intubated, they get it. They'll come, They'll but they'll keep them on the list. If you don't check it off, and you don't remember to check it off later, they can never enter the list. Yeah, that's that's something that we need to do a better job of, I think, and so at, at, um, at some times. I had uh, one other question. I noticed that when you were speaking today, you admit you thrown out the statistic that two thirds of stroke re survivors require some sort of rehab. And, and you had just mentioned that in order to get inpatient rehab, you either have to have, you have to have a physical therapy need and either an OT or a speech therapy need. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of patients who have minor strokes won't meet those requirements, so they can end up getting outpatient therapy. Um, are there a number of barriers to getting patients adequate outpatient therapy? Do we see large numbers that are lost to follow up and things like that that would prevent these patients from getting the therapy they need? It's a great question. And yes, we do see loss to follow up a fair amount, particularly in people who have mild strokes, because the findings can be subtle, but they are present. And it's important that they actually have appropriate follow up with us as healthcare providers. So we make sure here that I see stroke patients with any kind of you know impairment within 30 days of hospital discharge. And I go over a checklist within my progress note that goes through their mobility, their ADLs, whether they've returned to work, whether they've applied for disability, their caregiver, who, how much the caregiver is doing, their, um, their medical equipment, their adaptive equipment, whether they're having any falls, that helps me determine whether they need outpatient therapy. And if they're not getting outpatient therapy, I have specific goals they can address. You, you know, when you're in the hospital, we have a, a almost a ceiling effect of modified ranking you don't really know if a modified ranking, if the patient's MRS of zero, if they've not gone back to work or driven a car or cooked dinner for their family, how would you know? You can't, you can't even ascertain that because they've been in the hospital the whole day or the whole week. So you can hypothesize it that they will be able to go back to normal, but not until they're back in their environment will you really know. And so that's why I see them within the first month and that I can really ascertain what the level of impairment is functionally for their life and be able to address that through outpatient therapies or home health therapies, or even if I need to do inpatient rehab after the fact, if something's really glaring that might've been missed, I can always apply for it later. It's more difficult to do, but it's feasible. But 
If I don't look for that within the first 30 days, I'll never know. Yeah, and if they're not being followed by a caregiver with, you know, regular frequency, then a lot of the time that's stuff that the patient doesn't pick up on, or even the family members may not notice if it's subtle. So having regular follow-up is you know, really important. Mm -hmm. Well, um, one of my last questions for you, and this is kind of, um, I don't know, a little bit uh, interesting, but uh, one of the things you talked about are kind of what your your path forward, your your future interests um, are going to to focus on. And so I guess I wanted to ask you kind of what new upcoming projects or even technologies or advances in the field of rehabilitation are you looking forward to? Absolutely. So I'm going to be looking more at the biological plausibility behind post-stroke recovery and the timing of early rehabilitation interventions and how they affect outcomes. So, you know, my world is acute stroke. Everyone knows that about me. So I'm looking at what we're doing in acute stroke and whether, you know, there are certain inflammatory biomarkers or neuronal damage biomarkers or thrombotic biomarkers that are more expressive in patients that are having more impairments, even if they have mechanical thrombectomy, the clots pulled out. Does that attenuate that, you know, neuroinflammation cascade or neuronal damage cascade and how the influence of actual therapy services helps to improve cortical reorganization versus inhibit it. So there's a, we know rehab is good. We don't know how good it is in certain populations because we don't know the mechanistic effects of it in, in, you know, within the biological cascade. That's what excites me about rehab now. We're getting to a point of you know, being able to measure these, these serum expressive changes and having the ability to do that on a level that wasn't available 10 years ago. It was cost prohibitive, it just wasn't feasible. So I think that that's important. I look a lot at you know imaging biomarkers as a part of our, we have weekly stroke imaging rounds for the PMNR team, for the inpatient rehab team, all the therapists, again, continuum of care. You know, we have no silos. And I look at the cortical spinal tract, make sure it's intact, and just the combination of you know using imaging and imaging surrogates and biomarkers that are image related, as well as serum ones and how to portend stroke recovery. It's an exciting time to be a stroke doctor of any kind. I think that there's such a potential and promise within the field when it comes to, you know, the advances that we have in relation to imaging and serum and plasma and how to essentially perform more precision-based therapies. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so stoked about what that means for rehabilitation and, you know, I'm excited to be a part of what it, what it, could, what it, could, what it could end up revealing for our patients. So do you think this is going to lead towards more of a personalized rehabilitation plan for each pace, each patient, depending on what their stroke is and what their timing is? Patient X should get rehab on day three. Patient Y should get rehab within the first 12 hours. It'll take me 20 years, but yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that is my goal. Yes, it'll, it'll take me probably the rest of my career, but yeah, that's the goal. Well, that's exciting. We'll both be here in 20 years in the field plugging along. So I look forward to seeing kind of what that, um, what that, where that leads us and kind of each of these individual plans. And it, it seems like a lot of interesting work, but definitely a, a long way to go. So thank you so much, Dr. Fedjika, for talking to us about, about stroke rehabilitation and recovery and kind of some of the work that you've been 
doing in the past and moving forward and even future efforts. I think we're all really excited to see where you go with this and we miss you here at UT Houston, but obviously we wish you the best of luck as you continue your career at UT Southwestern and um, looking forward to seeing you more in the stroke conferences and, and uh, hearing about your research. Thank you so much, Pam. It's, a, it's an exciting time to be a scientist. I miss everyone at Houston terribly. I cannot begin to tell you. And I'm very thankful for, you know, continual support and friendship and love that I've received from the stroke team there. I truly would not have the career in life that I have without, without everyone there. So I'm very grateful. Well, we're grateful that we had such a good, what, 10 years with you, right? <laughs> 10 years, I know. 10 years. All right. Well, take care, Dr. Fedjika. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much. And that concludes this episode of Stroke Busters. We'd like to thank Drs. Neka Fedjika and Pam Zelnick for their time. We're looking forward to speaking with Dr. Fedjika again in the future. She was an amazing guest. For more information on Dr. Fedjika's work, visit utsouthwestern.edu. As always, ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and are not a substitute for expert medical advice. Always contact your doctor before starting any program or therapy to make sure you're getting the best care tailored to your unique situation. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UT HealthStroke to stay updated on upcoming episodes. Be sure to share with colleagues, friends, and family. Don't forget to visit our website for more information uth.edu forward slash stroke hyphen institute. Until next time, take care of yourself and others.